this morning, we're going to be studying four verses in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. And let me give you a little bit of a context before we go into the passages that we're going to be studying this morning. We can say that there's different types of letters or different literature among epistles that we have in the Bible. Some of them have specific topics like Hebrews that it's talking about the superiority of Christ in every single aspect of the Jewish religion. In their history and in all the sacrificial system, it's talking about how Christ was preeminent on that. There's others that, like 1 Corinthians, that is attacking specific mistakes that the people in certain church were making. But the letter of Philippians is specific, and it's interesting, because it's mainly a friendly letter. It's a letter written to a group of friends. The language and the tone that the letter expresses is of affection. And it's normal that you can see that it jumps from one topic to another. And because of this, even some scholars believe that the book of Philippians is actually a collection of different small letters that Paul wrote to the people in this church. Some others believe it's just because of the relaxed tone that Paul is using in his letter that that's why he jumps from one topic to another without making a super clear sense. I believe that is the second one. I believe that it's just Paul writing to this group of believers that support him and help him in, in his ministry. Also, Paul in this letter is going to be dealing with aspects like persecution, reconciliation, false teaching, and other aspects of the life of the church. But the section that we're going to study this morning is basically the end of the epistle in chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. So please take your Bibles, go to the book of Philippians. We're going to read these four verses for our study this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know how many of you know, but Advent is something that in several countries, Protestants don't celebrate. In some cases, they don't even mention it. And this happens mainly in countries with a large Catholic influence. In order to make clear the distinction between the Protestant evangelical groups and the Catholic ones, most of the missionaries or the people that were leading those churches in the beginning distanced themselves from everything that could seem Catholic. And for this reason, most Protestant evangelical churches hardly or almost never read catechisms or they avoid the public reading of creeds. And as a result, some of the liturgical aspects that we have as an inheritance is getting lost. So Advent, for a lot of Christians, is foreign. And for some others, 
it's not something that they try to observe with a lot of interest. But I believe that the season of Advent is a great time for us to identify with those who were waiting for the Messiah. It's a great time to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ better. It's a fantastic time to grow in our fellowship, and it's a great time to grow in our desire and have a vibrant desire for Jesus' second coming. As I was thinking of that, and I was thinking also of the season that we are facing, I decided to read and get some encouragement by four exhortations that the Apostle Paul gave to the people in Philippi. We will study these four verses that will give us four exhortations that will give us joy, trust, and hope that surpasses all understanding as we prepare our hearts to celebrate our King first coming. The first exhortation will be rejoice in the Lord. Our second exhortation is proclaim his second coming. The third one is defeat anxiety with prayer. And the fourth is rest in the peace of God. I believe that to celebrate Christmas, to prepare our hearts for this beautiful season, we don't need to go always to the typical Christmas verses. But we can find encouragement in different scriptures that can speak to us loud and clear in the situations that we're facing, but pointing to who Christ is, to who God is. So let's pray before we start our study. And Father God, we, we come before you in absolute dependence. Father, we know that we're facing difficult times, a season of unrest and uncertainty. Father, we know that you are a God of certainty. We know that you are a God that has promises, but we also know that you allow these things to happen for us to depend more on you. Father, help us to develop a life of joy, of trust, and of hope, and allow us to be just in awe when we realize that all these things that you're giving us, they just surpass all capacity of understanding because they come from you a loving and perfect God. We pray these things this morning, Lord, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our first exhortation, rejoice in the Lord. It's based in the first verse we're going to study, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, Paul is writing the closing to this letter. And he's giving several exhortations. The beginning of chapter 4, Paul messages to two ladies that are having some tension, and he's asking them to find unity. In verse 4, he will write this exhortation also, and he will make a statement for rejoicing. As most of these letters speaks about rejoicing, about a life that exudes joy. Paul is making emphasis on the idea of rejoicing in verse 4. He will repeat this word two times. Paul instructs believers to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is the source of the joy in life. Rejoice means to be glad, to be happy, to find joy. 
And here we have an imperative verb that will be repeated in the same verse to make an emphasis as a call to the Christians so that they need to develop a life that rejoices. We know and we have experienced different moments that lead us to rejoice. Different circumstances in life, a personal triumph, accomplishing something, or even the small things like our team winning a game or finding something that we were looking for. But what Paul is going after is not just these obvious moments of rejoicing because of something in a particular circumstance, but to develop a life that finds joy constantly. The Apostle Paul is commanding people that regardless of the circumstances of their lives, they need to find joy in the Lord. The request of rejoice always seems to be really difficult and challenging. I don't, don't know. You have experienced certain passages in the scriptures where you find yourself reading certain commands and they sound super Christian and then sound really good to do. But when you go to the real life, to the true, deep person, when I go to the real, true Moises who has battles, fears, inconsistency, those requests, those demands sound impossible to do. Sound so far away from what I can actually do. And I think, for example, of pray without ceasing or rejoice always. All those are good commands. All those are great things that we would love to do and that I would love to live out all the time. But they seem so far away from me sometimes. And when I come to this and, and, and I think, why does the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write this command? When I approach these moments, I approach it with a really easy and simple logic. It's either the Holy Spirit is cruel and commands me to do things that I will never be able to do. So I will feel like a failure all the time in my spiritual walk. Or this command is doable in the power of the Spirit. Not in my own strength, not in my own power, but in the power of the Spirit. Clearly, this text is telling us rejoice in the Lord always. But when I read it, normally it seems like I'm reading rejoice always. And I'm taking out in the Lord. It's my brokenness, it's my sin, it's my pride that takes out in the Lord and places all the weight of rejoicing always in my own strength. The passage says rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul in this same epistle, expresses how he can find the source of rejoice. How can, in different moments and challenging moments, regardless of circumstances, he can find joy. And it's about God's immutability. Is God giving us the opportunity to rejoice always in the fact that he doesn't change? 
in the reality that when things depend on God, they will not change, regardless of the different challenges. And I just made a small list, it's not exhaustive, of just six things that I found in the, in the epistle of Philippians that Paul is pointing out that are truth that will never change no matter what's going on. Some of the reasons that Paul expressed in this epistle to rejoice are, one is, he was saved to glorify Christ. It doesn't matter if he's in the midst of persecution. It doesn't matter if he's down or depressed. He was saved to glorify Christ, and that reality will never change. He can find his rest in Jesus' cross, crown, and second coming. And that will not change. It doesn't matter what's going on. The cross of Christ will never go away. The crown of Jesus, it's always there. And his second coming, it's clear, will happen. That doesn't change. Christ is almighty to supply Paul's needs. And he says, I was able to live with abundance. I was able to live without things. In the midst of persecution, in prison. And God always was supplying, not just for his physical needs, but for his spiritual needs too. That doesn't change. Others were getting saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think for us, we need to remember these things. When we see that churches are having issues coming together, where it seems that our gathering is suffering because of different regulations, because of the virus, or even other stuff that is happening, people are still getting saved by the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ today. And I think, brothers and sisters, if you are leading someone to, the, to, to Christ, if you're leading someone to the cross, share it with others. This is encouraging for us to know that the gospel is active still in the midst of all our circumstances. We have access to the throne of grace. He had access to the throne of grace, Paul says. That doesn't change. Fellowship with others in Christ doesn't change regardless of the circumstances. So the list is longer, but the main point is that Paul is encouraging believers to find their source of rejoice in Christ and not in their circumstances. Paul is pointing out this emphasis of rejoicing. The Apostle Paul is repeating this instruction. He's intentional about repeating this. He's saying, again, I will say rejoice. Paul is not repeating himself as a mistake. Paul is not repeating himself as a lack of grammatical structure. But with all the possible intentionality that he can. It sounds like me, like when a kid is going to drive for the first time by himself, and mom or dad says, hey, pay attention to the road. Don't use your phone. Pay attention to the instructions. Follow the instructions. And then the, dad, the, the, the kid is like, sure, yeah, I'll do that. He's walking out. and like, hey, stop. Don't use your phone. That's the kind of emphasis that Paul is doing here. 
is when we need to make a point, when something needs to be clear, and Paul is using this emphasis to tell them, rejoice always in the Lord. I will say, rejoice. So Paul is repeating this. Now, brothers and sisters, no one can take this joy from us. This kind of joy that depends on the Lord, no one can take that joy from us. We have so many reasons to live a life that rejoices all the time. The question is where we are placing our attention. What is the source of our joy? In no way, I'm meaning that we don't respond to our circumstances or that certain situations could make us feel sad. But the main truth that these verses display is that no matter what's going on, the Lord's immutable truth is there and will never change. When things seem to be out of control, we can always consider God's sovereignty. That doesn't change. All these that it's out of control is not out of, out of control from God. Also, I'm not saying anything new here. I'm not coming with the newest theological discovery. So why this, what I'm saying, is relevant anyway? I'm sure that even the youngest in this auditorium or the little one at your house, if you're watching the live stream, would be able to say this and will be able to articulate this. We know these things. Well, I believe that the main problem is that we have stopped believing these truths in meaningful ways. Some of these truths are said by us, like we say these things, as when we find this little paper in a fortune cookie. We repeat these as meaning, like meaningless mantras. We're just repeating certain things without a deeper meaning that actually affects who we are and how we display our lives. But if we fully believe in all these promises, all these truths that God is giving us, we will be able to understand the amazing power that plays for us, that will give us a life of joy regardless of our circumstances. But it has to do with our heart. It has to do with how much we trust and believe in these things with all our hearts. Now our second exhortation is proclaim his second coming in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Other translations uses the word graciousness or gentleness instead of reasonableness. The, the word that Paul is using here could also be translated as kindness, tolerance, fairness. So speaking out of ignorance, I don't believe there's a word in English that could express all the qualities that this adjective is trying to communicate in the Greek. I think we don't have a word that expresses completely what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is arguing that there's a need to express this gentleness, this graciousness in public. That people need to know about this quality. 
Paul is after an attitude that it's a blessing to others. In other words, Paul is showing the importance of getting away from being self-centered to a life that understands that if we are followers of Christ, his or her life has to be lived in service to others. First and foremost, to the Lord. Our lives are lived to glorify God, to serve Christ, to honor Christ, to obey the Lord. But also in second place, we ought to serve others, love others, forgive others, give to others. Our lives are not our own anymore. The, that gentleness, that graciousness that is given to us is given so that we can put it in service to others. Verse 4 makes a bit more sense when we think about this. How can someone could go further than his own circumstances or his own desires? Only when a person understands that his life is not his own anymore. The implications of denying yourself that we heard last week from Pastor Mike Purcell are applicable here. Don't live your life for yourself. Don't live your life just centered on you, but to serve the Lord and serve others. And the main idea of this statement is that our example will be relevant to others, not just for our fellow believers, but for unbelievers as well. Verse 5 and 6 are connected by the statement, the Lord is at hand. This statement encourages us to make our gentleness known to others as well as not to be anxious about anything. If you see in your text, that phrase is connecting these both. It seems even like one same sentence. Now let's come first to the second part of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. This expression could mainly be understood in two different ways. One could be the proximity of God to his people, like in, like in Psalm 145, 18. And we know and we understand this kind of proximity. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So we know this. We learn this, that God is there. It's close to us. We can reach out to him. But in the other hand, it could mean that the Lord is near in an eschatological way or in the study of the last things, the last times, in that sense this idea of the Lord is near. His second coming is closer than what we expect. I honestly don't remember. I have shared this with you guys before. But in the early church, the early believers, they have a greeting in Greek. That is Maranatha. That means our Lord come. This expression occurs one time in a really interesting and heavy passage in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 
says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. This is how they are responding to this situation. This was a common greeting. Because it was so near for them. It was so obvious and evident for them. They were expecting this. They were waiting for this. Now, I don't know, and I honestly sometimes don't understand, how is that men and women were able to resist persecution? How they were able to go through all these horrible moments, or for the first believers, the first reformers that went through so much for their faith. How is it someone could go and face that without hesitation? Probably you have never heard the name of John Rogers. He was a clergyman and a Bible translator during Mary the First of England's reign. Uh, John Rogers became famous in history as the first Protestant victim of Bloody Mary. But in some documents, we can read that Roger's motivation to translate the Bible and putting his life on risk was for people to know about the living God and Jesus' future coming. He was condemned to burn at the stake on February the 4th of 1555. And there are several accounts that say that his family was present his pregnant wife and his children were there. And there was a French ambassador making some writings and some accounts. And he wrote, all the town came to support him. He was radiant. Not a single sign of pain or suffering. Even his children assist at it comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as he had been led to a wedding. Brothers, sisters, we're talking about rejoicing no matter our circumstances. To show our gentleness to others. And here we are considering these things as possible in the Lord, in his eternal promises. Rogers indeed was going to his wedding. He was going to meet with his Savior. He was putting things on perspective. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you thought about Jesus' second coming? Or what about this other question? Have you ever thought that you will be alive when Jesus will come to establish his kingdom? We are in such self-centered lives that we don't even think often enough of some of the most important aspects of our faith. We're so self-centered that we forget these things. Sure enough, we love the idea of Jesus as a friend, of Jesus that the Jesus that loves us or that wants to rescue us. But what about that Jesus that is a king? that is Lord, that will come to establish his kingdom and will demand from his followers to serve him. Let me push this. Let me exaggerate a little bit. 
But if the Lord Jesus Christ was to come next month, would that bump out your plans? And I know it's COVID, no one has plans. But think about if you had plans. Will this bump out your plans? Is this important and relevant to us? We are in a church that celebrates communion every Sunday. And this celebration is a proclamation of Jesus' second coming. Our king is coming back as a conqueror, as the Lord that he is. It is with these things that we can really live out our lives when we understand the importance of Jesus' second coming. And that will put everything in perspective. And we will be able to experience peace and experience rejoicing. Because we understand that those things are the ones who matter the most. Now think about this. The fact that the passage in Philippians is talking about Jesus' second coming doesn't change the reality that he is near also when we call upon him. Like we read in Psalm 145. Both are truth. Both are real. The Lord is near in our daily life. And we can cry out to him. We can experience this beautiful relationship with him. But also he is near in his second coming. Pick whatever conflict is going on in the U.S., in the world. You name it. Our best response to that is the Lord is near. Please do not hear me saying that we don't have to use the rights we have to speak out for when injustice happens or when certain agendas are trying to destroy lives or where certain agendas are destroying the image and the idea of family, the family that God established or that even Christian institutions might face tremendous attacks in the future. Still, we are acting in those pursuits and we are active on those endeavors, but the first and the best answer we can have is the Lord is near. And this is why it's so important to believe these things with all your hearts. If we honestly believe in our hearts that the Lord is near, our lives could change drastically. Let's go to our third exhortation. Defeat anxiety with prayer. And I'm not trying to say here that anxiety is not real. But prayer is also real, and sometimes we forget that. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul has been exhorting the church in Philippi. And we can read this text and as stop worrying about anything, but pray about everything. In the Sermon of the Mount, the Lord Jesus explained to the people that their heavenly father loved them, and he was the provider. 
But what they had there and what we have is a truth that the Lord will provide in the midst of our need and despair. That the Lord is there to provide for ourselves. Now, I said that the statement, the Lord is near, connect both verses 5 and 6. Don't worry about your life. Moreover, when you know that the Lord is near, the redemptive story, God's plan is moving, is happening. Christ will return. That will happen. Everything is moving in favor to God. Even though we think we're losing, everything is moving towards God's redemptive plan. And that is for our benefit. Do not be anxious, is what Paul is saying. Again, it's obvious, sickness, losing a job, a family conflict, some personal, deeper situations can create deep moments of anxiety. But Paul's argument is that we need to put things in perspective. We need to understand that God controls our circumstances too. And that nothing changes those promises. What is the remedy for this? Prayer. Probably the most underestimated means of grace that we have. Sometimes anxiety looks way more real than what prayer looks to us. They both are real. But prayer... It's way more powerful than our anxiety. Prayer against seems to be sometimes the last resource that we have. We normally say, well, I have done everything I can. The, anything left is just to pray. And this should be our first resource. This should be our first response, our first reaction. We are called to be like children for the gospel. Little kids cry out for their parents. They don't stop and think if it's worthy to talk to mom or dad about that toy they can't find. Or if it makes sense to talk to them about that terrifying shadow in the darkness. Their first reaction is to cry upon mom and dad. And I've heard that as little kids start to grow, parents says, well, he's more independent by now. He's doing his own thing now. Well, we are not called to be independent from God. As we grow, as we mature, we are called to be more dependent on God. As we understand better our condition, we know that the best thing we can do is to cry out to God all the time. Prayer and supplication is what Paul is saying here. It's not, just normal, it's not just a normal communication with God, but it's a cry of urgency to God. That desperation call that only a child will do to their parents. Likewise, we have to call upon the Lord. We need also to develop an attitude of thankful life before the Lord. 
We need to be thankful with him before we even ask anything. We should be thankful just for the possibility to ask, of asking, of praying. I don't know if you guys have experienced this. I had. And in the midst of these deep suffering, some people have come to me and say, could you pray for me? Because God will listen to you because you're a Christian. And it's so easy to forget that I should be thankful just for the very reason that I can pray. And that I know that he's listening. Just for that, I should be thankful. We all know that bringing our requests to God is not because he ignores them. But it's for our own sake. It's for us to know that we can depend on him. It's so that he can free us from our anxiety. When we bring our requests to God, we develop a life that depends on him. Our fourth exhortation. Rest in the peace of God, verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The outcome of living out lives in the light of these exhortations is to enjoy the peace of God. We all know what God, that God answers to our prayers, and, and we have summarized this as three possible answers. Yes, no, or wait. We all have the experience to bring our requests to other people. Our parents, our boss at work, um, our leaders at the church, our leaders in the government. And in reality, we expect that they will try to do their best to answer or to bring a solution to our request. But the reality is that they will fail sometimes. Some of them will fail more often than others. None of them are perfect. None of them can guarantee us a perfect answer. There's no way. But the Lord can. I don't know how often you think about this, but when we are praying to God, we are pray we're bringing our requests and our needs to a perfect God. The only true God, that God that loves us, who has an eternal perspective, who is able to see the whole picture, who has all perfect information to make a decision for us, when we present our requests, we are presenting them to a God that is not just that he will not make a mistake, but is that he cannot make a mistake. God doesn't have the ability to fail. He doesn't have the ability to let you down. That's the God we're praying to. A God that will never fail but he, because he can't. That's why God's peace surpasses all understanding. Because we cannot understand that, that perfect God, that perfect love. It just surpasses everything that we can imagine. In Hebrew, we know there's this concept, shalom, that includes wholeness in it. 
God's peace is far beyond anything that we can understand. We cannot grasp what the seed means to have a perfect understanding, to be able to make a perfect decision without a self-centered mind. God doesn't have to analyze his motives to make sure that he's in a good place to answer a request. He's always perfect in his ways to us. And this is something, dear brothers and sisters, that we cannot understand. It's so far away from us. I love how Osborne, the commentator, puts this. He says, This peace when will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul does not use a regular verb for keep or guard, but instead chooses a military term envisioning a Roman garrison built around a town with a battalion of soldiers standing guard. This would have been a powerful image for Philippi, which as a Roman garrison town was the most secure city in all Macedonia. Paul is saying that God's peace built a fort around us with his host of angels as guards to protect us from life horrors. He's guarding us. He's always watching after us. We have no need to fear. This doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen, but that those painful events can never truly defeat us. That's the difference. It's not that we will not face hardship, but it's that that will never defeat us. And this is critical to remember this in the light of the Lord is near. All of us, all of us will pass through the valley of shadow of death. But the main point is that we will pass through it. We will not remain there. We will not get stuck there, but we will pass through it. The scriptures remembers us that we will be more than conquerors. Then when life is over, we will be repaid for all the suffering and we will inherit eternity. That's what we will receive after the hardship here. As Paul says throughout the prison letters, this is accomplished in Christ Jesus. Not your strength, not your circumstances, but in Christ Jesus. This is in light of the fact that we're united with Christ and his body, the church. Dear Crossway family, as we come to this time of Advent, and we think of the amazing miracle of the incarnation of Christ Jesus for our benefit, approach this season with the mindset of these exhortations. We can rejoice when we remember that God sent his son to the world to live the life that we were not able to live out, but to pay the price that we have to pay. We can show to people our gentleness because we celebrate his first coming 
but indeed we are proclaiming that he will be back, that he will return. He came in humility, but he will come back in all his royalty. And this can set out our anxiety. We can defeat our anxiety knowing that all the, the old promises were and will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. All will come to a perfect ending. We can pray knowing that Jesus brought us close to the Father and left the Holy Spirit to mediate our prayers and guide our lives. We can experience the peace of God that is Jesus Christ himself. He is our peace. Let's prepare our minds and hearts to celebrate our King. And let's remember that our minds and hearts and under, they are under a protection that surpasses all understanding. And let's develop a life of joy, of trust, and of hope that depends in God, in Christ, and the Holy Spirit that are active in our lives. Let's pray. And Father God, we, we know you. But sometimes we have doubts and we have questions and we don't know how to approach these things. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to de develop this kind of life that you are calling us to lift out. Father, as the world comes to celebrate Christmas, and most of them forget that this is about you, that it's about your son, help us, Father, to lift out our faith so that we can proclaim that Jesus Christ came once, but he's coming back. He will return for his church. And Father, that truth, help us that that will move us to, a, to an urgency to proclaim the gospel to others so that we can enjoy Jesus' second coming with joy, with trust, and not with fear. Thank you, Lord, for this day. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.